Ecclesiastes 4.12, Though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now in the second to last chapter of the Gospel of John, we're tracing this morning this three-stringed cord that makes up God's design for the believer. We're going to follow three threads. The thread of belief that rests upon the revelation of God. The thread of identity, who you are, who I am, who we are as believers. And the thread of mission. All of these are here in this resurrection scene. Whether it's Mary, who the veil is lifted and she sees who Jesus is. Whether it's the disciples who are empowered and sent as the Father sent the Son. So too the Son sends them on mission to proclaim this good news, this message of those who believe and are forgiven. And even Thomas, who stands in abject disbelief, coming to a point of my Lord and my God. All three of these are pivotal to your life, believer. All three of these are pivotal to your life. For if you have identity and mission without belief, you will soon have Legalism. Legalism. If you have belief and mission without identity, you will have instability. Who am I? What are the boundaries for how we ought to do this mission? And belief and identity without mission will in time become extinct, as history shows. Where mission dissolves, so too will dissolve the body in that area. Belief, identity, and mission. Now, if you have gathered with us today and you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Him, if you haven't met Him in the way that Haley described for us in her testimony, if you don't know Him, how Thomas comes to know Him, my Lord and my God, and He worships Him. If you don't know Jesus in that way, my prayer for you as we consider these threefold cord for the believer is that you would come to belief in Christ. And so let's look at that first component of this cord that we're bound in that's not quickly broken. The strand of belief resting upon revelation. The strand of belief resting upon revelation. Now, belief is all through this text. We see it first in verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. Now, I'll be honest with you, if I was writing this, there was also a 100% chance I would have included the fact that I beat somebody in a foot race. That's going to happen. So John puts that in there. I love that detail. And belief is everywhere, whether it's coming to the disciples or moved to belief, whether it's Thomas who is in an active state of disbelieving. We often imagine that we are neutral. This is one of the tragic effects of sin upon the mind. The unbeliever believes that they are neutral. If they just had enough evidence, then they would believe. That's a myth. Jesus engages with Thomas, he rebukes him. For Thomas is an active state of disbelief. It's an active state of disbelieving that Jesus calls him out of and showing him who he is. Thomas interacting with the disciples, men who have just received the, the Spirit for their personal ministry until Pentecost would come and the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all believers as the Holy Spirit and, and the gospel message proceed geographically through Acts and to the nations. 
The disciples are, they're charged up. They just saw the resurrected Jesus. They were meeting in fear, and now they've seen the resurrected Christ. You couldn't get men that were more passionate in belief. For the disciples didn't just believe. We believe the gospel. We see, I saw testimony a moment ago of a, a, of a young woman who believes in Christ, has given her life to Him, and is publicly declaring that through the waters of baptism. But those disciples didn't believe it in that way. They knew it was true. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They couldn't be more persuaded. And yet still, they couldn't bring Thomas to belief. Do you know Jesus? You believe in Jesus. What John shows us is that John here, the first to the tomb, isn't moved by the Scriptures. Verse 9 tells us that. Tom doesn't, uh, bleh, John doesn't come to believe because the Scriptures told him so. John also doesn't, even though they do. And John doesn't come to believe because Jesus told him. Remember, Jesus all through the Gospels told His disciples on multiple occasions and probably many more that aren't even detailed for us in the Scriptures that He would be crucified and raised again from the dead. But John doesn't believe because of that or believe because the Scriptures foretold of this. Rather, he comes to believe because the evidence is there. But whether it's Mary's belief or John's belief or the disciples' belief or Thomas's belief or your belief, it's not our belief that makes it true. Jesus literally rose again. By the way, look at verse 8. How in the world is verse 8 I'm sorry, back verse 5. How is Hobby Lobby not taking advantage of the verse in which Jesus folded his clothes and put them inside? How is that not in every house where there's a laundry room and a bedroom? How is that verse not everywhere? John comes to the, the tomb and, and everything is folded. Jesus has cleaned up his tomb. So then how considerate. But John knows the state of the disciples. The disciples didn't go and take Jesus' body. He knows Jesus is dead. Remember, we looked at the spear pierced him and blood and water came out. He knows the state of the disciples. They're all huddled in fear. Because after all, as we've already seen, what if, if they did this to the master and they did this to the teacher, what will happen to the servant and the student? They know that the Jewish authorities have gone to such a place that they were willing to kill a man that was blind, that was given sight because his testimony was so effective. What of them then, the disciples? They were on America's Most Wanted. They were gathered in fear. But John sees and he believes. What do you do with the tomb of Jesus? If Jesus rose from the dead, what does that mean for you? You see, we can... A load of evidence. This is a literal occasion in a literal place. Literal town. Literal people. Everything matches up. And we can show all the evidence in the world, but we cannot will someone to belief. The disciples were the greatest example. They had all the relational credibility in the world. If you listen to the midweek podcast, you heard that in, uh, in one of our recent interviews with one of our campus missionaries. That were friends with people, were but we also want them to come to Christ. We're not friends with them so they'll come to Christ. But there's a level of credibility that, that happens in relationships as you spend time and invest in them and get to know them better. But who could know Thomas closer and more intimately than all the disciples? 
They had maximum credibility and they couldn't bring Thomas to belief. Only God could do that. What does that mean for us, believers? It means that we ought to pray like we believe that's true. That means we ought to never give up hope that someone is too far gone, too active in walking against the way of God, too raptured up in the ways of the world. We ought to never believe it's true, but we ought to pray like He is truly the one, that God is the one. And the message of the Gospel, the news of the Father in love for us, sending the Son, the eternally begotten Son who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who fulfilled all the demands of Scripture and all righteousness, that Jesus laid His life down as a make-right sacrifice on the cross. He suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He defeated death and arose again on the third day. And all who place their faith and trust in Him, all who believe to theirs is eternal life, forgiveness and peace with God. That's the news of life, that God, man, Christ, and we call all people to response, come to believe. If this is the working of God, believer, you ought not ever be moved to discouragement. And so I want to speak to the Watts family. Thank you for prioritizing the local body and the exposure of the Word of God to Haley. That's awesome. Her brother is embarrassing her and calling her out. I love that. But even for the parent or the grandparent whose children are older and gone from the home, the parent and those children are living waywardly. They appear to have no affection for Christ. Your heart is deeply discouraged. Let this text be a calm, healing reminder that the Lord is still at work. That He can bring even the most wayward to Himself. That if He can bring the dead to life, He can bring them to life. That's good news, isn't it? Belief. Belief. The strand of belief and the strand, secondly, of identity. Identity. Note three components in this chapter we'll see of identity. If you were to clear your social media profile and write out who you are, here's who you are. Here's who we are, beloved. This is our identity in Christ. We look at verse 7 and we're reminded that we are adopted into the family of God. We are adopted into the family of God. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, speaking to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, the word family is used often in our culture. I want to dry heave every time I watch a commercial and they speak about us being family. It's like the, the bounty family. and I'm like, I just bought paper towels. I don't think that makes us family from you. Appreciate it, but family. We use that word a lot, but what Jesus did for us on the cross and His raising from the grave, did it make us more of a family even than a workplace? Even than a common interest or a sports team? Or somebody who passionately serves and has a brotherhood or sisterhood in a line of duty? Are we actually made more family than that? And we saw last week when we asked the cross to tell us what you heard Jesus say, we looked at those seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. We noted that Jesus took the relationship bounds of 
Mary, his mother, and bound them with his cousin. And applying the fifth commandment that he now is to not be her nephew, but he is her son. And she is his mother. For in the kingdom of the Lord, he's able to revive and give us new life and new relationship standards and commitments. And so, in this text, Jesus tells Mary to let go of him, for he has a different work that he's going to do as he's going to go and and ascend and be with the Father, and she has a different work. So even though it was time for the thief to be with Jesus in paradise, for the thief would die. And he asked him, remember me with Jesus when you come into your kingdom. And, And he was with him that day. Jesus told him in paradise, with Jesus. That is paradise, with Jesus. That's home. That's Mary's story too. She clings to Jesus and Jesus says, you got to let me go. Stop clinging to me. Instead, you are going to go and speak. You go and say this to my brothers. Now, there's, it's true in the biological brothers, so there's some discussion on this text. Because in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus' biological brothers who don't seem to believe in him as the Messiah, but they're there in Acts 1. So something happens, i.e. they see the resurrected Christ and they come to believe. But it, I think it's most persuasive here from what Mary's next actions are is that Jesus, he's called his disciples his servants, for they were and are. They're his students. When he told them the will of the Father, he says, you're now my friends. And now he's taken that relationship and he refers to them as his brothers. Family. One of the beautiful gifts of being committed to a local family and as believers in Christ, we have family all over this world. Millions upon millions of believers gathered all over the nations of different languages and and, and skin colors and every different way you could imagine. We're family in Christ. Deeper family than any nationality could ever hope to achieve. Truly. One of the gifts that God gives us in a local body is, even though that's 100% true, One of the gifts of a local church is that you are committed to somebody in a way that you can live out family together. So the idea of family is is a little less messy than it is to be in somebody's life close enough where you get to be family together, right? And you get to sin against each other a little bit and have to practice forgiveness. When you get to serve each other, when you get in a situation that's so tight, even financially, you don't know what to do, that you can call upon your church family to serve each other in needs and to receive service. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. And then, your local family, you walk out this mission together. That's our identity. We are adopted into the family of God. And second, your identity, beloved, we are forgiven and at peace with God. We're a forgiven family. We're an adopted family by the work of Christ upon the cross. As the Father in love sent Him for us, but we're also forgiven and at peace with God, family. Now, verse 19. So on that evening of the day, the first day of the week, the door's being locked. So we don't know the full biology of Jesus' glorified, resurrected body. But even though he doesn't give us all the details here, it says that Jesus gets into the room somehow. But his physical, glorified, resurrected body. So when we're going to observe communion in just a little while, we'll take from physical elements, a reminder of Christ's 
literal physical body, as we looked at two weeks ago when we asked the cross, tell us about Jesus' body. When Jesus comes into the room, what are his first words? Boo! Right? Is that what he said? No. Of course not. Of course not. Peace be with you. He gives the common greeting for the time. What's the state of the disciples? Are they just hanging out, waiting, shooting the breeze? Waiting for Pentecost? No. They're gathered in fear, John tells us, for fear of the Jewish ruling authorities. Because if he did that, if they did that to Jesus, what will they do to him, to them? They gather in fear, and Jesus comes into their presence physically in his glorified, resurrected body and tells them, What? Peace be with you. How can they have peace in such a time as this? How can they have peace? It's because they have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And it's not by what they have worked, but what, but what Jesus has worked, what Jesus has completed upon their behalf that Jesus has taken the sting of death and risen again. And peace is theirs. Believer, peace is yours. Forgiveness is yours in Christ. Forgiveness not simply for the things you've done up to this day, but forgiveness for your whole life. Jesus' work upon the cross was so great that you've been purchased and brought into a family of God. All of your sin has been paid for on the cross once and for all. He's not being represented. He's not being re-sacrificed once and for all the righteous for the unrighteous. You are forgiven and have hope and are accepted and have peace and forgiveness because of the one in whom you trust. His work. You're a forgiven one. And so you can have peace. We see peace all through this letter. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. In verse 23, the message that they're to walk out. Look at that. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld from them. And later on, we see this greeting in verse 26, eight days later when Thomas is in the room. And Jesus says again, the same greeting, the common greeting, peace be with you. The peace they have with God and they're in the peace they are to have with one another. Now, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Let's take a moment and look back to Matthew chapter 10. So each of the Gospels giving us different flavors and choosing to highlight different insights. And this is a highlight that will help us here to, I think, get a better picture of what Jesus is commissioning the disciples to do. In Matthew chapter 10, remember Jesus is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus didn't come to the United States. Jesus didn't come in this sense to South Africa or to Australia or to England. Jesus is sent to Israel. And so to the disciples that he sends out, he sends to the lost sheep of Israel. He does not send out to the, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. That's a part of the great commission that goes into all the nations, though, and all the world. And we're a fruit of that. But if you look at Matthew chapter 10, look at verse 13. And Jesus sends his disciples out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaiming a message of the kingdom of heaven. And look what Jesus says that the disciples are to do to those that receive this message compared to those that do not receive it, do not believe. So we look at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 10. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, so i.e. believe in that message they're proclaiming, 
shake off the dust from your feet, a custom of leaving the, the very dust that's under the judgment that is on that household. Leave it there. Get it off your feet before you go on to the next place. It's a sign of judgment. Verse 15, today I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The news is made so clear to them in the sending of the disciples as Jesus, the eternal Son, has come and the Word of God made flesh dwelling among them. They're accountable for that truth that they reject. The disciples now are given this message of proclaiming this good news. To those that believe, they have forgiveness and peace with God and eternal life. And to those that will not believe, will not receive that message, they are under the wrath of God already. And something to keep in mind, it's possible that the people that they're going to, they know. Now, I've not learned a lot about Nacogdoches since I've been here. But one thing I have learned is that there's many families in Nacogdoches that have been here for many generations. And so, what that means is people are related in ways I didn't know. And people are like, yeah, my great-granddad was friends with his great-granddad. And you see there's all these connection points. So the people that have been here, I think it's really neat. It's a cool thing that people know each other's families so well for so many of them. So imagine in Israel, in this region where people have been there, not as the oldest town in Texas, but they have been there for centuries upon centuries upon centuries in the land. They've experienced hardships together and all kinds of relationships. The disciples are given this message by Jesus to go into the house of Israel. They probably literally know many of the houses that they're going to. And because it's Jesus is the king and it's his kingdom, they don't have the right as they leave the house to say, ah, but don't worry, you're probably okay, you're good. For if they do not receive the message of the king, judgment rests upon them. Identity believer. You're a forgiven one. That is sin and omission. Something we'll talk about momentarily. But first, identity. Third, verse 27 through 29 and 31. We are blessed servants of the Lord God. We are blessed servants of the Lord God. You're forgiven in Christ. You're made family in Christ. And we likewise are the blessed servants of the Lord. Different roles, different responsibilities, but all of us, every one of us, with the gifts that the Spirit has given us, we are servants of God. And so what does Thomas say? His confession is what? My Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus was an angel or a mere man, what should he have done at Thomas's confession? He should have been terrified and rebuked him. He should have been like in the book of Revelation when, the, when, when John recognizes the angel and begins to respond in fearful worship. What does the angel do in the book of Revelation? Whoa! No, 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 no. No, 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 me. Rebukes him. Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. Jesus receives Thomas's worship. Jesus hears his confession, my Lord and my God. And Jesus receives his confession and his worship as Thomas worships him. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know Jesus to say, my Lord and my God? What a tragedy it would be to walk through this text 
This is our 39th week in the Gospel of John. To walk through this book. And to not to turn from sin and place your faith and trust in Christ. To not come to a confession like Thomas. My Lord and my God and worship Jesus alone. What a tragedy that would be. So if you know, if you don't know Christ, if you believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. And you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus as your King. Would you confess your sin to Him right now? Speak to God right now, even with your eyes open. And just cry out to God with your heart. Your lips, Jesus. God, I believe you're holy and just. Perfect and eternal. I know you love me. But God, when I look at you, I know that I am in sin. I am not holy. I'm a rebel. I am not clean and I cannot make myself forgiven. I know that I justly stand under your judgment. But I believe, Father, that you in love have sent the Son who lived a sinless life, the Holy Lamb of God, fully God, fully man. And I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, taking my place. I believe He died and rose again on the third day. I place my faith and trust in Jesus alone to forgive me and to give me life. My Lord and my God, thank You for forgiving me. Lead my life as I abide in You. It's the confession of the believer. If you just place your faith and trust in Christ this morning. You can mark that on a connect card at the end of our service, as it is with every service. We'll have pastoral staff up here, our staff team to receive you, and you can mark that on a connect card. We want to celebrate with you in your next steps. Why? Because we are servants of God together. And the fact that we are still here and still alive means that He's given us a work to do. Belief, identity, and mission. We live out the mission that God has given us to make disciples for His glory, the strand of mission marked by these three components as we look third, receiving, going, and speaking. We see this pattern in Mary's life. We see it in the disciples' life. We see it in Thomas, who comes to believe eight days later. We see it at Pentecost. We see it in the Great Commission. And we receive it. When you receive Christ, you're given a charge to go and proclaim Christ. And we see this in a little scaled way in Mary's life. Mary Magdalene. Now, Magdalene is not her last name. It's not like Mary Magdalene. It's not her last name. So in Luke chapter 8, we see Mary's backstory. In Luke chapter 8, they're going from cities and through the cities and through the villages, and they come across this little village called Magdalene. Archaeologically, it's still there. Again, this is not, this is not just a book of teachings and proverbs. This is real places, real people, real time, real events. And they go to this city called Magdala. And while there, they come across Mary, this woman, 
the scripture says, has seven demons. And Jesus cleanses her. They were in Magdala. Magdala is a city, a little town about three miles from Tiberias on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a real place. I didn't know that off the top of my head. I had to look that up, okay? I'm not like, that's not something you should know. I barely know where Alto is. When I say I barely know, I mean, I have no idea where Alto is. I know it's a town. I've heard you talk about it. But the point is, even though I don't know where that place is, the disciples know Mary's story. They were with Jesus. This woman who had seven demons cleansed from her. And what happened? They, she meets Jesus first. And she grabs a hold of Jesus, which is what a child of God does, isn't it? Home becomes, for the believer, not this world. Home becomes to be with Jesus. This is what Paul himself articulates. He says, my heart is to be with Jesus, but it's better for you all that I stay here. He says that at the end of Philippians 1. His heart's torn. This is what happens with the believer who comes in by faith in Christ. We're forgiven and at peace. And now we, we live in, if you will, two kingdoms, as many have written about. And Mary grabs a hold of him and, and Jesus, in a subtle way, says, let me, or not too subtle, just let go of me or stop grabbing hold of me. Because I've got a work to do. It's not to pick up where I left off here. I'm going to ascend to be with the Father. Ministry of intercession. And, and he's going to work through his hands and feet and lips, the, his bride. And Mary is sent then early on to go and proclaim a message to the disciples. And the disciples are given this same movement language. For this is what we do in love. In love, the Father sent the Son. And in love, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers. We walk by the Spirit to do the good works He's prepared in advance for us to walk in. We speak faithfully, we serve, and we love others, and we care for others. In the way of Christ, we point them to come to know Jesus. We invite them to come and respond by faith in Christ. This is our lives. This marks Mary's life. And I want to encourage you in this, especially those that, that are home at this time. One of the blessings of being in a multi-generational congregation is that you're able to interact with people you wouldn't normally interact with, especially me. What I mean by that is, is I'm able, and I can always do a better job of this, but I was able to sit down with one of our senior adults who's in a care facility this week. Not inside the facility, but through a glass. And you hear of these older saints who have walked with the Lord for decades and decades. And many of them, their friends and many of their family have already died and gone home to be with the Lord, to be with Him face to face. And for many of them, not all, for many of them as their bodies begin to increasingly fail them, there is a struggle of purpose, a struggle of mission. They can't necessarily go about freely. But what can they do? How can we know there's a good work? Because the Lord has left them here. Just as He left Mary with Him and didn't let her come with Him and ascend, And so too it is for us. And we will never know on this side of heaven, listen, how many of us have been upheld by the faithful prayers of older saints. 
how much temptation we've been preserved through and trials we've been upheld through because of the faithful prayers of our oldest saints. Our entire lives are on mission. That's in the statement, in the confession that Haley stated. I'm going to walk in His ways until He calls me home to be with Him face to face. Life on mission. It's what transforms into our three questions in our next steps. Number one, whom will I commit to pray for today? Whom will I commit to pray for today? And practically, I want to ask you, would you ask the Spirit to place somebody on your heart and your mind to pray for faithfully just this week? Somebody that may not know Christ. And pray for them by name every day the rest of this week. Say, Jesus, would you do a work in their life? Would you bring them to newness of life? Pray for them by name every day this week. Well, that's what we ought to do if we believe indeed He has the power to raise people from the dead by His Word and Spirit. Number two, whom will I seek to serve in a practical way? Who will I, whom will I seek to serve in a practical way? So don't overthink it. You just said, well, nothing came on my mind. Just serve somebody. Put a plan together and serve them. Find a way to meet a need. To care for them this week. You say, well, Jesus doesn't need it. Yeah, but they need it. Right? Just show them love. A practical way to show love this week. So, so, so choose someone that you can go and serve in that way practically. And third, here's the question. Where will I go this week with a willingness to speak about Jesus? Where will you go this week with a willingness to speak about Jesus? You know what happens if I don't have my mind right before I go somewhere? I kind of, my brain has this mode where I can just kind of turn it off. I don't know if you have that. But I can just go and not see people. Just get tunnel vision go, okay, there we go, I'm back. So where will you go, whether it's to the grocery store, whether it's on your way to class if you're a student? Whether it's a time period in the evening where you find yourself just kind of turning it off. Where will you go this week with a willingness to speak about Jesus? And ask the Lord before you go in those places, Lord, will you, will you bring me somebody to point to Jesus? To care for, to offer, to pray for. You bring them and I am willing, Lord. One of the ways that we proclaim Jesus and the gift that the Lord has given us is the ordinance of baptism. If you didn't receive one when you came in, if you're a confessing believer, if you're abiding in Christ, you should have picked up a communion cup. And if you didn't get one, that's okay. We have some servers that can come around and pass them to you. So if you did not get one of these and you're a believer who's repented of sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, and you're at peace with the local body, you can raise your hand and we'll get that brought around to you to serve you. Yeah, so don't be afraid. And as that goes around, we're reminded in this gift of the ordinance of baptism that we saw demonstrated by Haley a moment ago of this allegiance to Christ, this union with Christ. But Haley proclaimed a union with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. And she's to walk in newness of life. And one of the gifts that God gives the body then is this, this ordinance of Lord's Supper, this Thanksgiving meal that we take together. And so some of the components of what the Lord's Supper does for us is it builds our faith. 
In Psalm 147, verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. What the Lord's Supper performs for us, among other things, is as a body, as we observe, we choose to observe the Lord's Supper every last Sunday of the month, those that come humbled and beaten and exhausted are reminded of the finished work that they have received by faith in Christ who worked it on the cross. And our eyes are lifted. As we wrestle with sin, we're reminded not how small our sin is, but how great our Savior is. For His shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. And we have been forgiven and adopted. And we're also reminded later on in Psalm 147, His delight, speaking of the Lord, is not in the strength of the horse nor the legs of man. So not in our abilities, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who feared Him and in those who hope in His steadfast love. And so as the Lord gifted, in a similar way to the, the way the Lord gifted Israel with the Passover to remember His deliverance, the Lord takes the Passover meal, Jesus, and He reinstitutes this new covenant in His blood. And He gives this gift to His bride to partake of together. One of the great service components of this is we partake of this not individually on our own, but we partake of this as a local congregation. And we look at Christ and we say, by His wounds, I'm healed. And we're reminded of the other brothers and sisters as we look around and say, by your wounds, by His wounds, you're healed. We are family by what Christ has worked upon the cross. And yes, He gave His life for us, but we believe that He has risen again. And He appeared to the disciples and later on to Paul. And He will come again. And so in this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We too will be with Him for eternity, face to face. That's the good news we proclaim in this Lord's Supper. And so, as I look to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you leave this morning as well, in just a little bit, remember that there's uh, waste baskets to be able to throw these out. Not only do we look around, but we look through history. And we're reminded of this gift that the Lord has given the body that builds our faith. Builds our faith. Encourages us to walk missionally and intentionally, but there are millions of believers all over the world today, some in countries where it's dangerous to do this, to gather. And yet they proclaim the Lord's death until He comes there. We will never meet them on this side of eternity. And there's believers who have lived through the centuries that gather together and celebrate and they're reminded their faith is stirred and they proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now, they probably, a couple hundred years ago or 2,000 years ago, probably didn't partake of star foam, okay? Call it for what it is. But what they did do is they partook it in faith as a local body, unashamed to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, no matter the cost. For He sends His people on mission and He gifts us the bride together to serve each other and build each other up to love and good deeds. So I read now what Paul tells us in this recounting of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Jesus literally shed his blood for us. The Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world. We are made new in Christ. We are sent to live on mission proclaiming this good news we've received in Christ. None of us came to this ordinance and demanded it, but we are recipients of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so enjoy unity as a body of forgiven ones who profess Him, we're able to take the Lord's Supper together and be reminded of whose we are and how we became His by faith in the only begotten Son of God. In verse 25, Paul says, In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together before we respond in in song. Lord, how good you are. You are the giver of life. Thank you for this gift of the Lord's Supper to observe together. This gift for our faith. This gift that reminds us of our identity and our purpose. We thank you, Father, in love. Your great love you have for us that while we were yet enemies, you would send Christ to die for us. We thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling all that the Father had given you We thank you that you make intercession for us. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us, convicting us and comforting us and leading us on this mission of proclaiming Christ. Father, would you encourage those who are weak physically, Lord, and segmented as well. God, restore them and give us eyes to see, give us boldness to speak, and love to be able to serve others this week. We give you glory, and we thank you for this meal we share together. We proclaim your praises in the name of Christ. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond in song?